Hello, and welcome to episode 5 of the Anxiety Book Club. This week we have Dr. Reed Wilson and his book, Stopping the Noise in Your Head. Stopping the Noise in Your Head is not just a book about anxiety. It's very much a practical guide for how to deal with the mental disorder. Our author and today's guest, Reed Wilson, takes the reader step-by-step through a counterintuitive but effective method for winning the game that your anxiety is playing with you. First, by stepping back, learning its rules, and then moving forward into the anxiety, welcoming it in, and cleverly scoring points against it in ways it didn't see coming. Okay, thanks for listening and enjoy! Welcome everyone to the fifth episode of the Anxiety Book Club. Uh, Today, it is my great pleasure to be talking with Reed Wilson. Uh, He's a licensed psychologist who directs the Anxiety Disorders Treatment Center in Chapel Hill. Um, He's also a professor of psychiatry at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine. And he is the author, most importantly, of this month's book, uh, Stopping the Noise in Your Head, The New Way to Overcome Anxiety and Worry. Uh, so thank you so much for being here, Reed. Sure. Glad to do it, Josh. Uh, so this book was recommended to me by Shala Nicely, uh, who was last month's guest. Um, and we had a really great discussion about OCD. And I asked her, okay, now that we're done with you, who, who would you recommend next? And uh, she didn't hesitate to recommend you and your book, uh, which she said was sort of the culmination of uh, a lot of work and research and effort in working with patients. And it's been my pleasure to read it this past month, um, all 350 pages of it. So. <laughs> so, yeah, well, that was a lot to cover. There is indeed a lot to cover. Yeah. And uh, very informative. My book is all marked up and I have I have many, many questions for you. I don't aspire to get to all of them, but hopefully we'll get to a, a good amount of them. So what is the difference between anxiety and worry? Well, I make my own definition uh, and distinction of the two when I'm working with people. I think of anxiety as the psychophysiological arousal that comes um, when we're anxious and upset and nervous and scared, and that worry is really about the thoughts. So, And I just distinguish it that way so it's easier when I'm working with somebody for us to talk about the two and you know often anxiety is driven by worry that is typically the case so maybe we'll find some exceptions along the way despite the fact that people for people with anxiety disorders there's often times where the anxiety or the worry is sort of misplaced or not really serving us best there are times when it has a, a place a usefulness in our lives is that accurate Sure. And that's in, in part why the book is called Stopping the Noise in Your Head is that I, when I'm talking and describing this, it's I really think about worries that are either signals or noise. And you know, signals are anything that comes into the mind about a task that is needs to be handled now. I have some responsibility to handle that. Let's get going and figuring out how to solve that. So typically when a worry is a signal, the task is, you know, worry is step one of the problem solving process. So it is time to get to work and begin to figure out how to solve that problem. Worries that are noise are, we would define as repetitious, unproductive thoughts that make us distressed. We don't need to be 
paying attention to these thoughts and yet they intrude into our mind or they come up at the wrong time. So if I were a single parent of you know three children and I've just been laid off by my job and if I don't find another job in the next 30 days, I'm going to lose my apartment, that's a worry that is a signal. I need to figure out what am I going to do and get some job training and make sure I'm applying every every day to anything that comes up. But when the disorder of, of anxiety or worry starts to intrude, what it does is takes this relevant, important topic to be addressed through problem solving, and it nickels and dimes me all day. I keep you know, going, oh my God, I don't have a job. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? I don't have a job. And, and that is the intrusion. So here's another example of worry as noise, which is the topic is relevant, but right now is not the right time to be paying attention to it. So when I wake up at three in the morning and start to worry about what am I going to do about my job or the speech or getting on the plane, that's, I've declared three in the morning as sleep time. So even though I need to perhaps problem solve that worry, now it's none of my business and I need to take it off the list. So, and the last thing I would say at this moment about that is all worries come into the mind as signals. All of them do. And so we have obligation consciously to pick and choose which ones we pay attention to and which ones we don't. And for lots of people with anxiety disorders and OCD, that is a confusing question to answer. Okay, so it's it's definitely up to the user to sort of decide when or which worries uh, to turn into signals uh, to problem solve, as you say. And it could be uh, sort of context-based, like not the right time, or it could be sort of just conceptually not worth paying attention to at all if it's maybe like an irrational worry. That's right. Okay. So so for people who don't have anxiety disorders, I don't know if you've ever peered into their minds, but what's going on there that us with anxiety have problems with? Like what, what's, what's the, the inside of a, I, I don't know if I should say normal, but an unanxious mind look like? Well, I think an unanxious mind, well, of course, no one has an unanxious mind, but some of us are built with the nervous system of a racehorse and some of us are built with the nervous system of a turtle. And so you have some genetic issues here for folks who are less worried than other folks. They kind of sit back a little bit and handle things as they come. What what we know around people who are prone to having the anxiety disorders is they have this kind of what we would call anxiety sensitivity. They When they notice any sensations of anxiety, they focus on them and they're upset by them and they want to get rid of them. And when they have worries that pop up, they everything seems to be very important and serious and need to be handled right now. So there is a little difficulty with people with anxiety disorders to not only distinguish what's relevant and what's not relevant, but also the skill of letting go or dismissing 
the irrelevant stuff. Obviously, we can get into could get into lots of things around genetics and so forth, but I don't really think it's of practical value for what we're you and I are trying to accomplish here. Yeah, I was just curious because I've I've just been thinking a lot about you know the difference between a mind like the one that I have and maybe my listeners have versus people that sort of as you say uh, maybe take it in stride a little bit more. Yeah, and some you know some people are you know have post traumatic stress disorder or they've had some kind of traumas either long ago in the past or recently. And of course, if you've been traumatized, you know, the definition of a trauma, generically speaking, is you know some something happened suddenly that threatened me physically or or mentally, and I didn't know how to cope with it, and I suffered at that point. And then there's a kind of decision made by the by the mind, the brain, that says, don't, don't let that happen again. And, and then we try to figure out how to do that. And so there are people who are in this list that we're talking about of people suffering from anxiety and worry that have a, a specific event that has occurred that scared them. And, and almost everybody with an anxiety disorder has some form of distress that has occurred. You know, I got up to give a speech and and my mind went blank and I embarrassed myself or I was on that flight and turbulence hit and all of a sudden I'm having a full-blown panic attack or, you know, the list goes on and on that we experience something or those who have these diagnoses, something that was out of my control, really scared me, not sure how to handle it now. Um, and so I, in many ways, the unconscious, as well as my you know, conscious intention, come up with ways to handle it. Very often it's about avoidance, just don't go into situations where I'm not sure I can handle. And then also finding you know, crutches that I can use, taking medication or carrying my cell phone with me, never being alone and so forth. And, and that is in part because I say to myself, if I were on my own, I could not handle this. And therefore, if I use these crutches, including avoidance, then I'll be safer. And I guess the other, you know, I mentioned anxiety sensitivity. And the other piece here is that once you've got one of these disorders, there is something about uncertainty that is troubling, that in this disorder, whatever my themes are, I need closure. I need to know how things are going to turn out. I have very little tolerance of not knowing how things are going to go. You know, all of us as adults are are fully capable of handling uncertainty in, in many different ways. You know, if you're out driving your car, you don't know when the drunk driver is going to cross over the medium and slam into your car, but you're driving anyway. So, so it's not like these people have no intolerance of uncertainty, but in the arena where the disorder lives, that's a very strong issue. And that kind of gives us a, a clue about where we have to work with this kind of stuff, because if I can't tolerate uncertainty and, you know, the future is always uncertain, the next step forward is always into darkness, I'm going to have a lot of limitations in my life if I can't tolerate that experience. 
So it sounds like carrying our cell phones around or never being alone or various other crutches might not be the best path forward. I have a quote that I like a lot on page 345 that I think sums up at least the feeling for what you want us to do or what you want people with anxiety to do to work on their disorders. And I'll, I'll just read the quote and then maybe you can elaborate a little bit. Your best tactic is to voluntarily and purposefully want to feel unsure, distressed, awkward, insecure, embarrassed, or any other state that you fear. We're talking about a huge territory here, but you know, again, this intolerance of un uncertainty is, is part of this. So the quote opens up saying voluntarily and purposely and what I want people, and I think, you know, you're talking about page one, 345, there's only five pages left in the book. So, um, <laughs> you know, what, what people will have learned at, at that point is this whole concept, which is, is I need to take ownership of my work. I, if I'm in therapy with someone who's helping me overcome my disorder, my job is not to comply with their instructions. My job is not to follow these techniques that are presented to me. My job is to listen and learn and absorb what the person's trying to explain to me and then metabolize the strategy to treat my disorder in such a way that I, I get this piece, which is the disorders live inside us through our resistance. When we talk about acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT, ACT uh, is a treatment strategy, set of strategies that include mindfulness, stepping back, getting neutral, not being attached to some of the thoughts that come up. I And, and mindfulness is a, a tremendous skill set to develop, and I think ACT is probably the closest protocol that approaches what I do, but I'm more aggressive in this work. I'm voluntarily and purposely stepping into the territory of my life that has been taken over by the disorder. I want my life back. I want my mind back. I want the capacity to drive again. I want to be able to have my concentration available to the people I love and so forth. So I have an outcome picture that's important enough to me that drives forward this work. And my job is to step into what has been taken over by the disorder. So if you've got someone with OCD who's afraid of asbestos and avoids all kinds of circumstances for fear that they might come in contact with asbestos, and they've determined that there's some reasonable concerns to be paying attention to, but mostly the things they avoid are unnecessary, but they're afraid to do it anyway. They, their job is to step forward into that purposely, voluntarily. And then what I you know, say next in those clauses are seeking out, right? Instead of I'm willing to have this experience, yes, I'm willing to have it, but we're going to go even a step further than I'm willing, which is I'm wanting this feeling. I'm wanting this distress. And that's, that's even one step 
beyond willing. If you, you know, you hear me say, well, I'm willing to do this versus I want to do this. There's a felt difference there. So what do I want? I want to want to step into the arena of feeling awkward or insecure, unsure, embarrassed, um, ashamed. Uh, the whole list goes on. Any all these sensations and feelings that I don't want to feel, I want to feel. The essence of this work is paradoxical. I am looking to go towards the stuff that I don't want to go toward. And, you know, one of the, the instructions I give to people is, you know, only do what you want to do. If you don't want to practice your skills, don't practice your skills. You don't want to be in therapy, don't be in therapy. If you don't want to drive by yourself, don't. Only do things that you want to do. The corollary is if you want to get stronger, you have to want to do the hard stuff. So that's what all this is about. I would say one more example, just around if we think about social anxiety. Often when people are working with somebody with social anxiety, let's say I'm afraid to give this talk in class because people are going to judge me harshly. Uh, so a an exposure practice might be to give that presentation in class and tolerate not knowing whether people are judging you. And that makes perfectly good sense to be structuring it that way. But I think there's another step to be focused on, which is when I'm feel like, believe, imagine that I'm being judged harshly by others, I'm being kind of kicked out of the tribe, it taps a feeling of not just embarrassment, but shame inside me. And so I would direct the person to be seeking out the state of shame and learning to carry that, hold that, take care of myself in, in the face of feeling shame. Because if I can learn that, then I can tolerate shame. Then I can start doing the things that have been hard to me that might provoke this feeling, as opposed to not even knowing that the feeling is, is shame about what I'm doing. So a long-winded answer, Josh, to page 345 quote. <laughs> no, thank you very much. Um, and I realize that we haven't talked that much about the sort of basic, uh, as you said, paradoxical, but sort of uh, technical approach that you're supposed to take, according to the book, when dealing with things that you're trying to do work on. These are things like detachment, acceptance, asking for more, um, acting as though, and like you said, it's a very large territory, right? It encompasses a lot of pages in the book and a, and a lot of sort of your historical experience working with patients. Maybe I'm asking the wrong question if I'm asking you for a summary, but if there's sort of bullet points that someone 
might sort of abide by or follow when faced with anxious situations. Can, can you speak to that at all? Or should I ask you more specifically about maybe one of the steps that I, I'm No, I'll, I'll jabber on for a little bit and then you can ask me specifics if you want. But I, you know, one thing that we haven't said yet is that most of how I pay attention to this work is moment by moment. That if we can focus on the moments of distress and fear and worry and have a strategy for handling that specific moment, that that's our best way forward. So we, you know, although I, I am really, this is strategic therapy as far as I'm concerned, but but it's under a kind of umbrella of cognitive therapy. So I'm going to help people have a set of principles, guidelines that are we might say one one ab step abstraction above the specific problem. I want them to have some basic understandings as you we've talked about around a paradoxical stance of approaching what I don't want to approach and such. And once we get that whole package pretty much set, then it's manifest in moment by moment. One of the ways that the disorder gets you, whichever disorder it might be, is often having you kind of lift your eyes up into the future because the future is is unknown. And so that's what the, the disorder would want if we personify the disorder, want you to be thinking about the future because it taps you into uncertainty. And so you know, some again, if we go back to OCD, sometimes you'll hear if you're talking to somebody about it or working with someone, they'll go, well, you know, I can handle this moment, but and maybe not do my compulsion. But if I don't do my compulsion, then I'm going to be worried about that all day tomorrow. And I've got to write that paper tomorrow. So I might as well go ahead and do my compulsion now and get it out of the way so that I'll clear up tomorrow. Well, see, there's the hook of the disorder. Right. It's it's like, oh, let me take care of later for me. So being in the present moment and working on the present moment is a critical piece of what I want to be working on with people. And here's the other tricky thing in the moment. The moment right now is dominated by the disorder. And typically in the moment, I'm not sure that what I'm supposed to be doing therapeutically is the right thing to do. Because mm. in the moment, what I'm experiencing is doubt. And so, so all of a sudden, you know, I'm going, well, this, you know, I don't know. I don't know that I thought this through well. So I like to work with people ahead of time to the best of our ability and figure out how they want to respond to that moment and get clear that that has a logical basis. It makes sense to them. And then the expression I would have been using these days is you want to lock it down. You want to say, okay, this is, I've decided this is the most appropriate way for me to respond to this scene and I'm going to lock it down. And then I'm, that's, you know, that's me as the strategist. That's me thinking through and analyzing and figuring it out. Now I go to do my exposure. I go to do my practice and I'm going to be confronted with analysis coming up in the moment, almost like 
it's a the other the other part of me, the part of me that is more victimized by the disorder. And and she starts to think, oh my gosh, this doesn't seem right. I shouldn't be doing this. And 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 so I maybe I need to back away or use my crutch. And and that's where this concept of act as though comes up, which is I want to operate as though I want to take actions as though everything's okay. I can handle this situation. Nothing that I need to be worried about here. I'm just going to follow my instructions because if I don't operate as though that's true, I'm then going to get influenced by the the messages of the disorder, which is this is a bad idea you have not thought this properly through and you need to back away or use one of your crutches. So, so, I mean, that's, that's the, the nitty gritty that we get down to I actually have a whole, you know, I talk about this as a mental game and, and how to score points in the mental game and the book's kind of structured around, you know, four, four moves to make. One is I need to step back. I need to you know, first off, we need to step back and understand that what this disorder's intention is, so to speak, and so what its strategy is, so I can create a counter strategy. And then I need to be able to step back in the moment that it's happening and be able to say something like, oh, oh, it's happening, or oh, I'm doing it again. Oh, there's my urge again. So that that wakes me up to what I want to do next. So step back and then want it means I want to take a position of, I want this right now, because most everything that we have to address is about resistance, not wanting something. So, so I, I want to do the opposite of that, which is I want to be, I want this experience because I have to have this experience in order to modify it. Lots to say in in that particular one. But once I get my head straight, get myself oriented about what my intention is, what I want to do, what's the right thing to do here. Now I step forward. So again, as I said in the beginning, not to comply with the instruction of a therapist, but because I've metabolized this information and now I'm going, I'm stepping forward because I want my life back. This makes sense to me as the path to get it back. And then the fourth move that we might make is is what we call, I say, be cunning, which is sometimes you just have to, you know, these disorders are very clever and manipulative and cunning. They use the our natural proclivity to worry and to brace ourselves, our, our unconscious response to protect ourselves in, in moments of threat. And so sometimes we have to fight fire with fire around talking back to the disorder. But in the moment, so if we're talking about in the moment, how to score a point very simply is I step into a circumstance which will provoke some degree of uncertainty and or distress about my theme. And when that shows up, I want to step back and notice it and then say something, you know, to either uh, have self-talk because all of this this work is driven by self-talk. So I've got whatever I'm saying automatically, like, oh, no, I don't want to be doing this. And then either I, you know, give a, a message of motivation to myself, I can do this, those kinds of messages, or I can give myself an instruction, you know, raise your hand, uh, speak up, 
step forward, keep moving. Or I can, you know, talk back to the disorder. Is that all you got? Why don't you make me more anxious right now? I'm not, I'm got my heart rate's only at 90 beats a minute. Can you, let's see if I you can get me up to 110 beats a minute. And then, you know, basically after I've said that message to myself or even to the disorder, then I turn away and focus on whatever task I had at hand right then. Now, that's a point. I've just scored a point against the disorder in that moment. So you score a point moment by moment. What's important for people to understand is that even if that threat comes back eight seconds later, 12 seconds later, one minute later, it doesn't matter. This is a skirmish. Yeah, I'm moment by moment. So if that comes back again, great, because it gives me another opportunity to score a point. And I, you know, I know in this brief time we're together for me to say something like great is seems disrespectful to people who have such anxiety. And I, and I certainly don't mean it to come across like that, but there's a lot of justification for accelerating a kind of excitement to combat the terror. If you, you think on that continuum, you know, we've got this emotional response of, of fear and terror. And mindfulness moves us into the middle here, which is kind of neutrality. And we could say that neutrality is the opposite of terror or fear. We could also say, wait a minute, the opposite of I don't want this fear is I want this great. And so if we can figure out that this, since this is a mental game and not reality, that I can adopt a more excited, strong, determined, committed position to start combating the disorder instead of just trying to go into neutral, which is very difficult for people who are just getting started in the work. The moment when people realize that their anxious thoughts are not necessarily dangerous. Um, I know at least for me, that was, that was a big moment because I, I had been treating my thoughts as sort of the gospel um, for so long as and every anxious thought as a problem to be solved, as you said, uh, sort of fingering each one, not as noise, but a signal that um, allowing people the opportunity to not have to solve every quote unquote problem that crosses their mind, I think is, is a tremendous step in the right direction, or at least. Right. Important. And just to, to add it, yes, it's, it's not dangerous, but it feels dangerous. And that's the distinction, even, you know, to, to notice like, okay, of course it feels dangerous and I need to accept the fact that that feeling state comes over and also be clear that it is not dangerous. So the mindfulness stuff that you mentioned, uh, so it sounds like the detachment sort of needs to take place twice. It needs to take place first to sort of understand that you're like in the midst of an anxiety disorder to understand what it is, anxiety, OCD. And then it also sort of needs to take place on the margin uh, when you're in sort of a storm. So it's some kind of mental event that captures your attention in like a really emotionally compelling way. Um, and that's when you sort of need to uh, follow, I think in the book, you called it sort of like the director's orders. Like you've written the script when you were sober. And now as the actor, even if uh, you're having a sort of competing dialogue in your head with your OCD or your anxiety, just sort of read the script and maybe act as though what was written ahead of time is, is sort of the right course. 
Yeah, and it's, there's no maybe about it. You're going to have that other voice in there. And we're not trying to kill off that voice that has a sense of doubt and I'm not ready and I can't do this. We just don't want to put it in charge in those moments. So, yes, all that, as you said, around mindfulness, in the end, when treatment is over, people will be able to have a mindful response to all of this. So that is the end end result that we want, which is to be detached from what we have perceived as the serious threat that's going on. But I just take a, a slightly different route to arrive there that I think, as far as my experience is, can work for some people more efficiently than some of the work that goes on now where we're trying to get somebody to be mindful right out of the blocks. It's, you know, part of mindfulness is the, you know, this detachment, which includes a kind of quietness of, of the mind. And boy, when I'm built like a, a racehorse and then to try to immediately move to, to a, a quiet place, that, that's a big ask. And a lot of the people that we work with who have these disorders are also perfectionistic and they want to please other people. Um, they're judgmental of themselves. So if we try to get them immediately to, to take a mindful stance when that's difficult for them, it's, it's also easy for them to start disparaging themselves and feeling like a failure. And then we run the risk of, of losing these people. I see. So I think maybe the distinction that you're sort of creating is something like uh, the difference between the protocol or approach that you're placing forward and maybe other forms of uh, anxiety therapy is the encouragement of a person to go in and seek out um, situations in which they feel these sort of these feelings of uh, uns unsureness, if that's a word, and distress and awkwardness um, in order to sort of create opportunities for them to then maybe be mindful um, instead of sort of just cultivating mindfulness kind of as, as a good in its own right, and then hope and pray for detachment as the inevitable uh, doubts and sort of hard emotional times of life sort of come forward. Sure. This, you know, this work is not built for the timid. And yet we're lots of people that are working with are, are, are timid in the face of this. And so we do need to, you know, try to go, okay, how do I become more aggressive I am holding back too much. So so it's a pretty big push to get people to go from being intimid in I mean intimidated and, and timid to being aggressive and determined. And you know, that's why they pay us the big bucks to help them understand that. Fortunately the book is only eighteen bucks or so. Yeah, it could be much more if you were paid by the, the letter or by the word. <laughs> You're a smart Alec. Just be I'm careful. Sorry. I can make you well and I can make you sick, Josh. So oh, be, my God. Nobody will want to cross in me. Wow. No one's ever threatened me before in my own <laughs> podcast. So that's really <laughs> tremendous. That's really great. Yeah, I mean, I have so many. I've got so many questions. So here's a, here's a sort of side question. So let's say the person who has a fear of asbestos, they... They have this fear and it's keeping them from living their best life because, you know, they like to live in or they like to go into buildings, right? They they live in a house or they work in a building and something like that. But let's say, and maybe this isn't a be the best example, let's say their life doesn't really include buildings. I, I guess what I'm trying to get at is should we, or maybe should is not the right word, but 
all right, I'll just use should because I don't have another word. Should we try to conquer all of our sort of irrational fears or only the ones that get in the way of us sort of leading meaningful lives? Well, I go back to my cardinal rule, which is only do what you want to do, Josh. If you don't want to, if you don't want to approach certain things, then just don't approach them. I, you know, I will talk to people about the consequence of doing that. You know, if you don't, if you're afraid to fly, I think planes are going to crash and you're going to die on the plane. Well, well then don't take a flight. I mean, I'll, I'll talk with you about how irrational that is. And I will talk to you about strategies to, to learn to fly more comfortably. But if you don't want to do it, just, you know, the world can get by with you not flying again. There are consequences for you. You're not going to get to your cousin's wedding on the other side of the country. And you're not going to be able to use your spouse's frequent flyer miles that would get you to Europe and so forth. But it's okay. So I'm, I'm more laissez-faire regarding what do you want to work on? If we go over to the arena of OCD, the things that are in place for them generated by the disorder, I want people to understand that it's a pretty insidious disorder. It, it, if you leave some cracks open there, it's gonna, it has a greater chance of sliding back in and, and messing with you again. So I, I'd like to you know, take on all of the ways that OCD affects you. And then, but the other fears, you just have to, you know, whatever you want. You know, if I I can start giving presentations in my classroom, but I don't want to take Toastmasters and and go into competitive environments um, for, you know, humor talks or something, uh, just draw the line on that. Totally fine. I like there's sort of a a narrative of self-care or sort of leaving it open to the reader to sort of do what feels right to them. Um, and something else that I really like about the book is, is one, it's very encouraging, right? It's like, it's a very hopeful text. There's like case studies in there of like Bob and Mary and, and maybe some other characters who have made tremendous progress. And your tone as an author is that, you know, if you do these things, your life can get better. And also the book is funny. Like there's jokes in there. And, you know, I was laughing. I wrote LOL or LOL in the margin sometimes. I have a paragraph that I think is really nice. Either I'll read it or if you have a copy of the book, maybe if you feel like reading it. Okay. Anxiety is going to pitch you uncomfortable physical sensation, symptoms, and insecurity about your future. It wins if it can get you to worry, to avoid threatening activities, and to fight the symptoms with the hope that they will go away. If you can switch that up and purposely encourage anxiety to increase those symptoms, and if you can act as though you want them rather than dread them, you can begin to turn the tables. This is just one more way for you to discover that when you do anything other than resist symptoms, they begin to fade on their own. Yeah, thanks. So that I think what you're referring to is is habituation. Is that is that accurate? Well, habituation comes through this, but this process is not habituation. This, I mean, as you know, when you read about Mary and you read about Bob, they, you know, Mary changed in 24 hours. That couldn't possibly be because of habituation she only had one practice you know for a couple hours the, the in that evening it was through understanding 
and insight and then taking that understanding and trying it out. That's what we call them behavioral experiments where she goes, oh, that works. And then she caught on and she, she got it. Now she'll repeat, 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 and that will be a form of habituation. But this is what I'm talking about. But you got to get your head straight first and then you can go into stuff. You know, for some people, if you can imagine when you read the book, some people, the light bulb will just go on and they'll go, oh, I thought it was this and it was really that. Oh, that's interesting. So if we can get that going, they understand that the, you know, you know, one of the top things to understand is the topic, the content, the theme of my worry isn't relevant, or at least I want to make it so it's not relevant because it's not, if I keep focusing on the topic, I'm feeding the disorder. I want to get above the topic and look at the pattern of, of the disorder. Once I get that, now I've got some motivation. Oh, that's what I'm trying to accomplish. And so, so before we go to habituation, because the problem with habituation is I have to repeat, 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 repeat. And then I have an insight that goes, oh, oh, now I, I see how I can start controlling this. And so I don't, why are we waiting? Why don't we put this insight up front and then engage in the practices? Given that this stuff seems to work um, and it's worked for, you know, all the patients that you've worked with and all the people you've trained and stuff like this has worked for me. Do you feel, how do you feel about it? Do you feel like you've stumbled upon some, some amazing nugget of wisdom about the human brain? Like, how does it feel to even like know that, that this kind of stuff works? You're asking me if I'm narcissistic? Um, <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm sure somewhere in there, we all have some of that, but I, I, you know, I don't, I don't, you got too many superlatives in there for how I think about it. I, I think it's a, it's a protocol, and I think it's an alternative to what's being done today. If you know, we think about exposure practice and, and exposure and response prevention that is done with OCD, when you, when you survey psychologists in general practice, the majority of psychologists in general practice don't want to do exposures to people. They worry about it. They think maybe there's some danger to it. And so we've got the gold standard of treatment, which is exposure treatment, in which therapists are timid about it. And so, you know, unless you're a hardcore specialist doing this work, it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, get the right guidance and so forth. So I, I do think it's an alternative to it, not, not better than it, you, you know, or the greatest thing ever. I, you know, the reason I write books is I, I want it laid down because I think I'd love more people to be looking at it, paying attention to it and so forth. If we practice an exposure, since we've just been talking about that, but we don't feel those feelings of discomfort or anxiety or distress, does that mean that we're somehow not doing it correctly? 
Well, it, I mean, that could be one reason, uh, uh, you know, which means I could be blocking in some way. I could be going just another five minutes, just four minutes and 50 seconds, just four minutes and 30 seconds. I'm almost out of here. And so I could be, you know, filling my brain with um, intrusive thoughts that prevent me from paying attention to what's going on. You got to allow some of this stuff to occur. And, and if you're blocking in those kinds of ways, sometimes you might be doing it incorrectly or you're doing some subtle form of crutch. Um, again, just, you know, clocking the time it might be a subtle form of a crutch. And the other alternative is I beforehand thought that this would be a provocative exposure for me. And once I got into it, it really wasn't that bad for me. And so all that means is, okay, I just got to you know, put a checkbox against that item and I got to go up one level um, to something that might be a little more difficult to me. So I'll ask you just two more questions so I don't take up too much more of your time. Um, one is I noticed there's a lot of sort of physics metaphors in the book. I have one that I like in particular, that's the pendulum, but I was, and I was wondering maybe you could talk about what the pendulum metaphor is and why in general, um, or how did you come upon these metaphors from the realm of physics? Um, the answer to the second question is, I don't know uh, how I came across them. So the pendulum, again, is in physics. You So if you think about pushing your granddaughter or, or niece or child on a swing and they're saying, hey, you know, push me higher. Well, how do you do that? You stand behind them and you, you know, you push with your hands when the when the swing comes back to you you put energy into that pendulum and that forces that pendulum to swing higher of course it also is going to swing back to you stronger so if you want to keep the pattern going you've got to find a way to feed that pattern with your energy and in how i talk about this is about the getting rid of problem in quotes, getting rid of, which is I don't want to have these symptoms anymore. I want to get rid of them. What do I need to do right now to have them stop popping up? And the urge to get rid of is like standing behind that swing as as the pendulum swings to you. If what you're saying, so, so the, the pendulum is if the symptoms are coming toward you, the sensations, the experiences that are adversive, that are uncomfortable for you, if your stance is in the moment, I want to get rid of that in the moment, you are applying energy to that pendulum and that keeps it going. And that's why mindfulness works so well. If, if instead, when the pendulum swings toward you, you've got your hands behind your back, thinking of that swing, then you are not adding energy and that pendulum will slow down because of air friction. And so that's, that's, that's the principle of, uh, of the pendulum. I need to stop resisting. You know, the disorder only lives inside us by how we respond to it. And if we can change our response to it, then it's going to begin to die Perhaps it'll be a slow death, but it will die off by lack of that kind of reinforcement. That's, you know, it's why we talk to parents about their kids, you know, or every time your kid's going, mommy, when are we going to be there? And they keep asking it and you keep saying, I've already told you and don't, don't ask me again. And, you know, every time you come back 
at them with, you know, stop it, you are actually reinforcing the pattern. And so what we try to get parents to do to, after they've said, I'm not repeating that, then they ignore the question and keep driving or whatever, keep walking or pushing the stroller. And that's the way to begin to extinguish that kind of behavior. And that's what we're talking about here around the pendulum. My last question to you is we've read a bunch of books on the podcast about OCD and anxiety. Do you have a favorite uh, that you might recommend? Well, I mean, you got Stephen Hayes. That's amazing. You uh, got Shala, who's great with her OCD. I think maybe the possibility of talking to Sally Winston and and Marty Seif. They've got a couple of books out now that are actually getting some really good traction in in the public, and they might be the folks to talk to. Um, Sally's out of the Washington, D.C. area, and then uh, Marty is up in New York City, both good friends of mine, and very articulate about all of this stuff. Okay, cool. I hadn't heard those names before, so I will I would definitely check them out. Well, Reed, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciated your book uh, and all the jokes that I made about its length were only in jest. Um, <laughs> thank you. So, <laughs> so, you know, thanks for writing and putting this stuff out there and, and taking the time to, to sure. talk to me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Josh.